or do you find the text of this prophecy somewhat remote and alien from your life in London today? And another question, do you enjoy reading confessions as in the summaries of doctrine? Or do you find confessional statements somewhat complicated and not very exciting reading? Well, tonight we will see how a confession can be helpful in reading this prophecy in Micah, of Micah, which is preserved for us in the Bible. And in order to do that, we will use the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of the continental confessions. And in difference to the Westminster Confession, which is propositional, this one is personal. To say it may be somewhat naughtily in a different way, the devil could recite the Westminster Confession because these are statements of truth. And he may not like it, but he knows they're true. But he could never recite the Heidelberg Catechism because that is about our personal faith. And the Heidelberg Catechism starts with a very important question. And that question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? When the curtain goes up or when the curtain comes down, and when the waves of life are very high, or whether the tide is ebbing out, in all these circumstances, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then the confession goes on to identify what it is that we need to know, what we need to know in order to benefit from that comfort. So the first question, it reads, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own. Up front, a statement very different from the view the world, of course, takes about life. That I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. And he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then the second question, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer is first, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such a deliverance. And then the confession continues with 51 other sections under three main headings. The first one is on our misery, how we can know it from the law, what happened at the creation and in the fall, 
and why God's request is not unjust. And then there is the second section about deliverance, and it tells us about the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and how the Lord Jesus justified us. And then there is the third section about gratitude, and it reflects on the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. So what does a man or a woman need to know in order to live and die in the comfort of Christ? Well, three things, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, you need to understand your problem. Many people don't think that they have a problem. And of course, then there is no need to look for a solution. If you deny your illness, well, then you don't go to the doctor. And then there is grace, because you need to also to understand how and whom your problem is solved. Because otherwise you get stuck in guilt, and then you may well get depressed or become mentally ill. And then lastly, there is gratitude. You need to understand how you are now to live, not earning your salvation. That's terrible. That's denying the Lord Jesus. That's legalism. But out of gratitude, natural and happy as it was intended at the beginning at creation. So now let's see how this can be helpful in understanding the prophet, the prophecy of Micah. The little we know about Micah is said in the verse First one of chapter 1. And there we learn that Micah lived maybe from 80 to 120 years before the exile. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and of Hosea, who lived in the northern kingdom. And he probably service extended from 740 to 687, so quite a long period. At the time in Israel, there were only bad kings. And it ended the Northern Kingdom in 721, during Micah's lifetime, the descent of Samaria when it was taken by Tiglath-Pileser and the Northern Kingdom. In Judah, there were first two weak kings mentioned in that first one, and then one who tried to bring Judah back, Hezekiah. But the majority of the time was also very bad. And in fact, in 701, Jerusalem itself was surrounded by the successor of Tiglath-Pileser, Sennacherib. And it was very tight. It was the foreshadowing of the exile, as it already was foreseen by Moses. Micah, we learn, was from Morasheth. It's a village about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And he clearly was a countryman, like Amos. And like Amos, he didn't think much of the corrupt and the godless ruling classes in Jerusalem, whether they were ecclesiastical or national. And his description of their behavior, as you can find it in several places, for example, also in chapter 3, the verses 1 to 3, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? who tear the skin from my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces, 
and chopped them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron. The description is quite vivid and it reflects, I guess in a way, his experience of country life and clearly his view of people in Jerusalem. But he may have been a countryman, he was certainly not shy or uneducated, and he speaks forcefully in stark and in poetic language. And he did speak out, not so much against the reforming King Hezekiah, with whom he was probably of one mind, but against the ruling classes, and he did not mince his words against the leaders in Jerusalem. And in fact, we know from the prophecy of Jeremiah 26 verse 18 that he had some success. Because Jeremiah's prophecies, who repeated Micah's view that Jerusalem would be destructed, and Jeremiah says it's not imminent, about a hundred years later, also mentions that Micah's prophecies are still remembered. Now, if you look at this prophecy, it consists of three parts. The chapters 1 and 2, and then 3 to 5, and then our text 6 to 7. And they each begin with hear, listen, listen. Because there is something that Micah wants his audience to know. And since his prophecy is preserved in the Bible, he wants you to know it here today in London. And each of these three sections is a warning to Israel against its unbelief and about the coming exile. But it is also predicting and prophesying and comforting that God would save the remnant. Because that is a very important Old Testament theme. The remnant will return from the exile. It had to be so because of the Messiah. The final good Davidic king was promised. You can read it throughout his prophecy. First in chapter 2, the verses 12 to 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. And then he predicts the Messiah in verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And then the prophecy for which Micah is probably most famous in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be the ruler of Israel. And then in 4 and 5, he repeats it again, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock, and they shall dwell secure. And then in our text, we also saw it in chapter 7, the verses 8 to 20, in a much longer section. So now with the help of question 1 and 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we will focus on this last part, chapter 6 and 7. And I would like to summarize God's word for you tonight as follows. What Micah wants you to know, guilt, grace, and gratitude. He is confronting you with guilt, he is announcing you grace, and he is exhorting you to show gratitude. So first then, what Micah wants you to know, guilt, grace, and gratitude confronting you with guilt. Confronting people with guilt is not very popular, is it? 
Today, it's much more fashionable to go for mindfulness. That's that's what all these actresses do. I forgot their names, uh, Angela Jolie or Kidman or some other. Sort of a reflection on self without judgment. It sounds very nice, but there was an article in the papers the other day that some scientists had done some research and applied it to people with criminal tendencies, and then it turned out that the last remnants of their conscience disappeared and the brakes come off. Because, you know, if that's what I do and that's who I am and that's okay, well, then, you know, have another go. So confronting people with guilt is not very popular. Some people may even feel that it is oppressing or depressing, and it's certainly not fashionable or politically correct. It is now, and it wasn't then. But the prophet isn't bothered by what is politically opportune or correct. And he lays out fearlessly, in a typical Old Testament manner, their guilt, and he reminds them of their history. Because there had been Sinai. The Lord had freed his people from slavery and then entered into them, entered with them into a covenant. A treaty. He would be their God and they would be his people. He is the sovereign and they will honor him. And he will bless and protect them and they will obey his law and have no other gods besides him. For this, for the covenant on Sinai, there are often parallels identified in the way people in the old, in the ancient Near East entered into treaties with a mighty king as their sovereign, whereby they would serve him and he would protect them. And if such people then deviated from that covenant, there would be a messenger from the sovereign to remind them of their obligations, to pursue a covenant lawsuit and to argue the case of the sovereign. And Micah is here the messenger of the sovereign Lord, because Israel before the exile deviated from the terms of the covenant. They did not keep the law. Their rulers behaved like rulers, all say around us, so often do. They did not apply justice. They plundered the people. And they did not lead the people in following the law and in honoring God. And all the common people were not much better. Because they followed other gods, most notably, you can read it throughout the Old Testament, Baal, which was the god of the fertility, of fertility, of the spring resumption of growth, in fact, of wealth in that agricultural society. And the Baal worship is also still very much around today. It is now called the pursuit of money, career, power, entertainment, or fame. And then we see in our text, chapter 6, the verses 1 to 2, listen. Listen the third time, the third warning in Micah. Listen to the Lord's case against Israel. The covenant lawsuit, it starts. And the mountains, the everlasting, the majestic mountains, they are called as witnesses to confirm the Lord's accusation. It's God's creation that will attest to his righteousness and justice. And then in the verses 3 to 5, we hear, I, the Lord, have kept my side of the agreement of the covenant. I freed you, 
I gave you leaders. I protected you from the people who wished you ill and wanted you cursed. I lay lay dry the river Jordan, and I led you from outside the promised land, Shittim, into it, Gilgal. And there is a strong appeal. Where have I not kept my word that you now have left me? And then it continues in the verses, chapter 6, verse 9, down to 7, verse 6. Because that is what you have done, Israel. You, my people, haven't kept the covenant. And your house of Israel, you are corrupt, dishonest, violent, deceitful. Chapter 6, the verses 10 to 12. And then in verse 16, there followed Omri, who brought the idols to Israel, and Ahab, who allowed the innocent Naboth to be killed for his vineyard. And again, that it is in chapter 7, verse 2 to 4, there are no godly left. The upright have gone. The people are at each other's throat. The rulers are rotten, corrupt, dictatorial, and the best of the authorities are briars, worse than a foreign hedge. And then there is the conclusion, you have not followed my law. And also, you are already starting to feel the consequences. For sin brings its own reward, and a rotten society its own misery. And then in 6 verse 13 down to 7 verse 1, the consequences are laid out. You will never be satisfied, never have enough, never be content. And in 7 verse 4 and the next verses, you will never be at ease, never at rest. You cannot trust the soul, not even your own family. And that is what we often see around us. The society that has left God largely behind has no time for him or considers him irrelevant. And in the ruthless pursuit of its own love and in the ardent pursuit of its own happiness without God, it is failing. Economic and material wealth in our time has never been great. But rest and happiness eludes many people. And a great multitude is depressed or angry or anxious or worried or envious or striving or struggling or greedy or just empty. Because, you know, mankind was created to glorify God. To live in an everlasting peaceful relationship with him and to follow his commands. And deviating from that situation, sin and the fall, it brings misery and death. Now after that episode, Israel had been called back to the Lord, and they had entered into a covenant with him. And in that covenant, he would protect them and they would obey him. But Micah lies lays bare that they had broken his covenant and not obeyed his law. And so he lays out their and our guilt. And its consequences. But then we should also note that there he does not stop. And that brings us to our second point. Because what Micah wants you to know is guilt, grace and gratitude. He is also announcing grace. Because after he has exposed Israel's and now our sin, Micah pauses. He pauses in chapter 7 verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord, 
I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. You see, Israel had broken the covenant and left the Lord, and the nation had fallen on evil times, and it would get worse in the exile. And like the world today is full of sin and become rotten in many places, now what? Well, here is Micah, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God and my Savior. My God will hear me. And then he continues to explain what it is that he was expecting and what it is that he was waiting for in chapters in chapter 7, verses 8 and onwards. Now, in that text, the way in which the prophet expresses himself varies, probably to make it more memorable and more powerful in a society which largely communicated through spoken word. In verses 8 to 10, he speaks directly to his enemies, the ones threatening Zion because the city had broken the covenant with the Lord, its sovereign, and would not be protected by him anymore. There was nearly, the, the northern kingdom was taken away altogether by Tiglath Pileser, and later there would be Nebuchadnezzar. But it says, he, Micah, will rise and see the downfall of these enemies. And then in 11 and 13, he witnesses of his confidence directly to his audience in Israel and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the city where God resides amongst his people, will be, he says, restored. And in verse 14, it's maybe a little bit less clear in the ESV than it is in the NIV. He expresses himself in a prayer to God. In verse 15, God is cited as answering him in the affirmative. He requests that God will be with his people again, and God promises this. And then in the verses 16 to 17, he's probably speaking again to either his audience or to God. It's not quite clear. And again, it says the enemies will be in fear of Israel's God. But whatever way he expresses himself, the subject matter, the content of what he is saying is the same throughout. The message is God's people will be restored. And God will reach out and save and protect his people. And that message is here cast in the Old Testament imagery of Israel, the Lord's people, against the surrounding heathen nations. Hoping and waiting for God, verse 7, Micah is absolutely certain that God will save, will or shall, is used somewhere between 10 and 12 times in this section. You can read it in verse 8. I shall rise. He will bear the indignation, but then he, God, will bring me out to the light, and I shall look upon his vindication. And then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, that is again the enemy, and so on. Down to verse 17, and they, the enemy, shall lick the dust and they shall come trembling out of their strongholds, and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. You see, all Israel's enemies and all God's enemies, all the unbelievers and mockers yesterday, today, and tomorrow, they will be, says the prophet, astonished, ashamed, and afraid. 
and they will tremble and be trampled, says Micah. But Jerusalem will be restored. Probably he is hinting at what shall will happen at the exile and thereafter. And that hint was probably very credible given the fact that Sennacherib had been at the walls of Jerusalem. And the superpowers of that time, Egypt and Assyria, who alternatingly suppressed Israel, will come to her, Jerusalem, the place of God's residence in the Old Testament, to be judged, says verse 12 and 13. And God's people will be shepherded by him in Bashan and Gilead. Bashan and Gilead were two very fruitful areas that had been part of the nation in its heyday, David and Solomon, somewhere in the northeast. But most of it in Micah's time had been long lost. And the Lord is then introduced speaking himself and confirming his salvation and his grace with a reminder that he had already saved them earlier in Egypt in verse 15. You see, the grace is here extended to an unfaithful Israel and is cast in the terms of a nation that is being restored. As a nation, but also in its relationship with God. And the indications as to how that was to be achieved in Christ in the New Testament are only hints. We read some of them. But we know in the meantime that the Lord did come and that he triumphed over the ultimate enemy. I have come, says Jesus, in the text we read, to heal those who know they are sick. I have come to call sinners to repentance. And then also in John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And as it was intended to be in paradise at creation, So it will be again, and that is the ultimate restoration of the heavenly Jerusalem from Psalm 126, and that is the ultimate grace through Christ. And how will this restoration, this salvation be achieved? Well, in 7 verse 9, Micah had already indicated that this salvation was from the Lord. We read, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. And he later works that out very explicitly in chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. The words that we sometimes read as the assurance of pardon. Because there we read the God who is true to his covenant... You will show your faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abram as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That he will pardon our sin, deviation from the standard, forgive our transgressions, rebellion against the superior, and hurl away our iniquities every time we miss the target. And what it says is God's forgiveness is as complete as it could be. How God would achieve forgiveness, Micah did not yet know. In 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 10 and onwards, the apostle writes, Concerning this salvation, that is the Lord Jesus, 
The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that that would follow. But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told by you to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So what we see throughout the book of Micah are indications, hints, glimpses. That was all he saw. The first promise of that deliverance in chapter 2, verse 13, we read, and then again the promised ruler in chapter 5, verse 2. But the Lord's coming into this Bethlehem and his suffering in Jerusalem fulfilled Micah's prophecy. And therefore the conclusion at the end of his prophecy stands because Micah there plays a pun on his name. He asks the question, who is a God like you? Who forgives? Well, there weren't too many of those gods out in the ancient Near East because the gods there were usually considered greedy, unpredictable and mercurial beings. But Yahweh is a God, a covenant Lord who is reliable and forgives. And that is what the name Micah means. Who is like Yahweh? Who is a God who so graciously forgives? Only Yahweh. And that then brings us to the question of Israel's and our response to that grace. Because how do we now respond to Yahweh's action? And then there is the third point, what Micah wants you to know, guilt, grace and gratitude, exhorting you to show gratitude. With this we have come to the last section of the prophecy in Micah that we will reflect upon. It's also probably the best known part of it in chapter 6, the verses 6 to 8, where we read, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Because after the complaint and the charge of the Lord against these unfaithful people, the prophet now deals with the question the problem disposes. How, with what, shall I come before the Lord? How can I make up for my wrongdoing? And he gives the possible answer in the form of a questioning person. Shall I? And in doing so, he of course makes it very personal and very pressing for the reader and the hearer. But Micah refutes the standard response because he uses a rhetorical question indicating no for an answer. You see, people are trying to earn their salvation by their religiosity, their decency, their good works, their sacrifices, in short, by their legalism. And the prophet shows that in his questions. He moves in his rhetorical question from the presumably generous 
calves a year old. Calves were normally offered when they were eight days old. And if you first feed them for a full year, of course, that sacrifice becomes very expensive. Or even the extravagant thousands of rams, like King Solomon maybe, to the metaphorical exaggeration, rivers of oil, and finally the hysterical, my firstborn, like their revered ancestor Abram. And all these reactions in some shape or form we see around us, from people earnestly trying to be and to do good, real sacrifices, today of course not slaughtered animals, but, you know, time, effort, money, all the way to the aggrieved and the hysterical reaction, do I ever enough? But, says Micah, earning salvation through sacrifice or good works, deserving a relationship with the just and almighty creator through that, no, that is not where Micah is going. Negotiating and haggling with their gods, that is what the people around Israel often did, but that is not what the prophet has in mind. Forgiveness of sin, we already saw it in chapter 7, verses 1 to 20. God gives because of his mercy, verse 18. A word often translated as grace. And it was because of his compassion, verse 19. And it was because of his covenant faithfulness, true to Jacob, verse 20. It is, as it's given in the old hymn, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite no, respite no, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And after these rhetorical questions in the verses 6 to 7 with the implied answer, no, that is now first a reminder to the audience that they already received the answer. And in this reminder, Micah reacts very coolly, offhand nearly, with disdain, to this idea that the sinner could atone for himself with his sacrifices. He says in verse 8, One has shown you, O man, my good man, you were supposed to know. It has been shown you, O man. O human being, the word used here is man in his filthy as opposed to God. Your ignorant and your exaggerated answer in these rhetorical questions, it is inexcusable. For you have already been told what is good. The word has the implication here not as what is good for you, but something that is good morally. And after this rhetorical question about what the Lord does not want, then a summarizing question on what the Lord does want. And rather than these sacrifices, what does the Lord now continuously require? The answer, they should have known all along. For that question was already answered and had been posed and answered by Moses. Back in Deuteronomy verse 10, you can read it in 10 verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commands and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today. To act justly, is what our text says. 
or to practice justice, to do what is right. The expression is also used by Micah's contemporary Isaiah. In Isaiah 1 verse 17, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice. That is not in accordance with jurisprudence applying certain rules like judges do so often here. Because that often has little to do with what is just. No, this is the action that results from love. Maybe tough love, but love for the other. And that spiritual basis of love for this acting justly is described in the next clause, to love mercy. The word for mercy, chesed, in Hebrew, is a well-known Old Testament word, which means as much as faithful love, love that will never let you go. It is the love with which the covenant Lord loves his people. And so the expression indicates that the people are to love faithful covenant love or to have love of the chesed type they had to reciprocate imitate and respond to the Lord's prior faithful love in his covenant now as the description of their behavior had shown the way Israel and its rulers acted in relationship to one another was a far cry from this requirement and then the focus falls in our text on the underlying problem of why that was. It was because of their relationship with God. You see, to walk, to walk humbly with your God, to walk in Testament is not just putting one foot in front of the other and going from A to B, but it indicates a way of life. Acting in all kind of things on the basis of a spiritual outlook on life like they had been identified in the two earlier clauses. And, says Micah, this way of life is to be a life with God, your God. A life with God in the knowledge of his covenant, of his faithfulness, of his mercy to you. And then, of course, in gratefulness to live your life as he would like you to live it. The word usually translated as humbly in our text, is a rare Hebrew word. It appears actually only once here. It's recently been thought to to be better translated, not in humbly as in self-deprecating, but as wisely, circumspectly, reflecting thoughtfulness and awareness of the situation. Or in simple terms, knowing who is who and what is what and where we really stand in our relationship with God. And that, of course, does make us humble because of the guilt, but also thankful because of grace. And that difference in nuance from humble, between humble as self-deprecating and wisely and circumspectly is important because it suggests as a reaction joy and not depression or being down on yourself. It suggests the reaction of obedience, walking with God out of thankfulness and gratitude freely receive, or for the freely received salvation. Not under the pressure of a burden of guilt trying to earn your salvation. And so it says in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness like he had to you, and to walk 
in awareness, in understanding with your God. So then briefly and in closing. In this Old Testament prophecy of Micah, we saw what it is that Micah wants you to know. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. He is confronting us with guilt. He is announcing us grace. And he is exhorting us to show gratitude. It's the gospel, in a nutshell, in Old Testament form. Now, the Lord Jesus, as we noted, is here only hinted at. But in the meantime, now, we know that he has entered history here below. And in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, the Lord tells us, it is not the healthy we need, a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, or those who think they are righteous, but sinners. I have come to bring grace to those who recognize their guilt. And so then, may we face up to the reality and understand and repent from our guilt. But may we not remain stuck in guilt, but on the contrary rejoice in God's grace. And then in the joy over his covenant and his love that will never let us go, give our life in according to his will in gratitude. For when you know about guilt, grace, and gratitude, then you know enough to have the only consolation that there is both in life and death, that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let us pray. And we